Cream some butter and sugar. Mix with flour and milk. Add yeast and salt. Let the mixture rise and then stir in some raisins, spices and a healthy glug of brandy. Pour the batter into loaf tins, pop them in the oven and then an hour or so later you'll have yourself a Hartford election cake. The recipe dates back to pre-revolutionary New England when the sweet treat was handed out to voters as a reward for carrying out their civic duty. In that era, election days were celebrated as holidays, with booze flowing freely and enough election cake to feed a small army. It was a more tasty precursor to the I Voted stickers handed out at polling stations these days, including for this year's midterm elections. I'm John Prideaux, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what do these midterm elections mean for America? Republicans should have done better. With high inflation and an unpopular president, the stage was set for them to easily take back both chambers of Congress. They'll probably take the House, but it's been tough going there, and the Senate is more likely to just stay blue. It was a bad result for Donald Trump, whose hand-picked election-denying candidates underperformed horribly. Were these midterms a repudiation of Trumpism? Or will the former president, who's expected to announce soon that he's running again, keep his grip on the Republican Party? With me this week to make sense of the midterm election results are Idris Kaloon in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte Howard in New York. Idris, you're still awake. How's the week been for you? It has been a long week. Uh, It has taken uh, quite a bit of time to get results. We still don't fully have the final results. Uh, We have enough of a picture to generate an impression, uh, which is good enough, I guess, for our purposes. But all in all, it's been, uh, been okay. I'm pleased to hear it. You're still standing. I enjoyed the last line of the piece that you wrote, the results piece in this week's Economist, which was, like most varieties of joy, the one that Democrats are currently experiencing will prove ephemeral, which I thought was such an Idrisi end to the piece. It was was really good, but also suggested it might have been written by a man who perhaps hadn't slept for a few days. Charlotte, how are you doing in New York? And how's election week been for you? It's been a busy week in the New York office. There's a team of people who've been working to respond quickly to all the news. We had a webinar for subscribers yesterday, and it's been an interesting one, I think, for people in New York State in particular, because the governor, Kathy Hochul, was reelected a Democrat. But otherwise, Democrats had a horrible showing in New York State. So New York, which is kind of a media capital, of course, for the country, many people were looking across the map and seeing Democrats do rather well. But at home, they did poorly. Yeah, really interesting set of results from New York. I think we'll talk about those in a little bit. So we are recording this podcast early in US hours. It's 7am in Washington and New York at the moment. And the state of play is that there are still some House seats that haven't been counted, but it looks like Republicans are on course for a majority. Maybe they'll get about just over 220 votes. They need 218 for a majority. And the Senate's looking pretty likely to stay within Democratic control. But to digest what happened in these elections, I thought we'd start 
by talking to our resident data guru, Elliot Morris. Elliot wrote a piece for our website on Monday in which he predicted a red ripple rather than a red wave. I asked him how he got it so right. Well, I guess the first like health warning to put at the top of this segment is that not all elections are this predictable by our model. This is like partly us doing a good job, but also us getting pretty darn lucky. Um, the secret sauce maybe in the House is that our election model relied more heavily than other forecasters and definitely more than the pundits on results from special elections. Uh, which indicated Democrats should have been likely to even win the popular vote. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. It looks like the popular vote will come around to to be a one percentage point Republican victory. Um, But when you hedge your bets, which is what our model does, toward different inputs, um, and you average those together, right, over the long-term historical average, blah, 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 like, you get better predictions. And either we got really lucky or that worked out this time. When we spoke last week, you told me that you had one bottle of whiskey standing by an election night for if the model was accurate. How how good did that taste? Oh, it was great. Uh, although I didn't get to drink much because we had to write our stories about why the model did so well. I'm sorry about that. One of the things you've written about in this week's Economist was that Democrats seem to have done okay with Hispanic voters. And going into this election, a lot of the commentary from us and from others was about how in 2020... Democrats' advantage with that group seemed to be slipping and Hispanics were moving to the Republican Party. Not, you know, Democrats still winning that group overall, but there was quite a significant shift between 16 and 20. So can you talk us through that a little bit? Right. So for some numbers, uh, the county level results in places like South Texas, where there's lots of Hispanics, and even in some parts of Florida, though Miami-Dade being the biggest exception, Democrats appear to have done maybe 20 percentage points better on margin than Joe Biden. So it's significant enough for us to ask these questions. Uh, Part of this, I think, goes back to some of the theories of why Trump did so good rather than why Democrats did so well this time. And some of those theories were um, that maybe he was increasing Republican support among conservative Hispanics. Maybe he was benefiting from a good economy, which political scientists theorize would have been more important to Hispanic voters than other voters, especially white voters. And maybe we're seeing simply the sort of falling off of Trump's residual improved performance with this group, rather than Democrats doing incredibly well. There's also, you know, a sort of more wonky explanation, which is as you have higher turnout you uh, in an election, like a presidential election, then voters mirror their partisan behavior more. And so maybe there's a lot of closet Republicans who voted for Democrats this time or who didn't vote at all because it was low turnout. Um, and that's why you see Democrats doing so well. I guess that's my way of saying I have no idea what this relationship is going to look like in 2024. You mentioned Florida there in passing, and obviously one of the surprises of the night, not in terms of result, but in terms of margin, with both Marco Rubio in the Senate race and also, even more so, actually, Ron DeSantis in the governor's race. He won there by almost 20 points, which is a huge margin. What do you make of Florida? Why is Florida so different from the rest of the country? It is pretty shocking that Democrats have lost the majority of the vote in Miami-Dade County with Republicans going for, you know, DeSantis um, there, or the county going for Republicans. And one explanation is that the Hispanics in Miami-Dade County and in Florida, 
uh, at large are different than Hispanics in other parts of the country. You know, they're more Cuban, of course. They also tend to come from other countries in Latin America that aren't Mexico. One of the wonkier points here is like they are Hispanic. They have the label next to them, but there's a lot of heterogeneity, lots of differences um, in Hispanic populations, depending on where you come from. And so that makes Florida much different. The other part of the explanation here, I think, is that Marco Rubio has just always beaten the federal partisan benchmark. And so you combine him being on the ticket with Ron DeSantis, who's a rather popular governor in Florida, um, being on the ticket, and you get this huge uh, seeming overperformance, which, you know, under the hood doesn't necessarily look like as big a collapse for Democrats as uh, comparisons to, say, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden's vote margins would imply. You mentioned turnout a minute ago in passing. Turnout was pretty high this time around, right? Not as high as 2018, but pretty good for a midterm election. Are we seeing a revival of interest in politics, of political engagement? Or do you think that's just a thing that happens when, you know, Donald Trump wasn't quite on the ballot this time, but he was kind of, right? Because there were a bunch of his candidates. And also he had announced before the election that he might soon announce he was running again in 2024, thereby reminding voters of his uh, continued spell over the Republican Party. Yeah, I think there's two categories of things going on. And and one is, I think, Trump-specific, or or at least maybe specific to the Republican Party as as it is today and how Trump has transformed it. And that is that he raised the stakes of politics for lots of people, lots of suburban white voters who you know, put a premium on social issues and on democracy feel threatened by Trump and the Republican Party today. And lots of uh, Republicans who feel threatened by maybe the excesses of what they'll call wokeism or just the excesses of uh, far left liberal ideology feel equally that um, they have to turn out because of these new dynamics in American politics. The other thing is, of course, just a long term increase in polarization in America. And I guess the theory here from political scientists is as polarization increases, then the stakes for your side also increase. Um, So at the same time that there's been this increase in the feeling of the stakes of politics and therefore the need to participate because of Trump, you also have essentially exacerbated this longer term trend. And it looks now that we might be in an environment of high turnout in American politics going forward, not just if Trump's on the ballot, but, you know, maybe in the sort of permanent near-term future. Idris, one of the things we focused on before these sets of elections, and I think rightly so, was the alarming presence on the ballot of so many people who denied that Joe Biden had won the 2020 election, thought Donald Trump should still be the rightful president. And There were two categories of those people. One was people who wanted to be members of Congress, but the other was people who would have power over how the next presidential election was administered. And that was the more alarming phenomenon to us. And you wrote quite a bit about this anti-democratic coalition before this election, anti-democratic with a small d. How did those folks do in the end? On the whole, they didn't do that well. In Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, who would have been governor, uh, was probably the hardest core of the lot. He was at the Capitol on January 6th, bust a lot of people over to participate in that event. He lost quite handily to Josh Shapiro. If he had won in Pennsylvania, he could have appointed the Secretary of State who would have overseen elections. In Michigan, uh, Tudor Dixon, who was running to be governor, uh, lost, as did the Republican nominees for Attorney General and Secretary of State. It's still 
TBD in Arizona, where uh, Carrie Lake is in a pretty close contest and ballots are still being counted very slowly. Um, I think that for Mark Fincham, who's the Secretary of State candidate for the Republicans there, who also was at the Capitol on January 6th, the gap now seems to suggest that he won't win, at least to me. But we still need to wait on final results to know for sure. But on the whole, uh, not a particularly good showing for the most extreme candidates on that front. Well, that seems like pretty good news to me. I think it's one of a number of rather optimistic things that we can take away from this set of midterm elections, which is which is unusual given the drift of American politics over the past decade or so. Charlotte, another thing we talked about quite a bit before this election was what role abortion would or wouldn't play. There were various states which had ballot initiatives relating to abortion and Republican candidates in different states took various different positions on abortion and abortion bans. What do you make of the results? How important was abortion? And what can we tell from these sets of elections about what Americans in different states actually want the law to be? It was a really interesting night for people who are Focus on abortion rights, which, as it turns out, is a lot of Americans. So we have spoken about how in June, when the Dobbs decision came down overturning Roe v. Wade, Democrats got an immediate big bump. And the question was how long this would be sustained. Would this be something that would would bring Democrats to the polls in November or would pocketbook issues rule the day? And you can't make a national generalization, but in the five states where abortion rights were on the ballot in a specific way in the form of a a ballot initiative, voters sided to protect access to abortion. And I think that's very striking. And Democratic governors who campaigned with access to abortion as part of their platform did well, too. So I think all of those results are telling in that there was so much energy for decades on one side of this issue where this was this was an issue that really mobilized people to the polls with the hope of getting people in the Supreme Court who would restrict access to abortion. Now you see the pendulum swinging back in the other way where it's really an energizing issue for those on the left. Yeah, I, I think that uh, one difference is that in some of the bluer states like Michigan and California, the referendum was on whether or not to essentially codify abortion protections uh, into the Constitution, whereas the referendum in Kentucky was over whether or not you would allow severe restrictions to come in the future. And like what we saw in Kansas, I think the prospect of that is one that isn't popular even in fairly red states. But in my mind, they're almost two separate kinds of abortion referenda that we had. Yes, that's absolutely right. It's not as if every state was enshrining this within their constitution. I think most notable is just that it was something that seemed to have a uniform response against real draconian restrictions on abortion. I think that that is one conclusion that one can draw. If you remember being in grade school and going to science fair, right, you have three plants, you don't water one plant, and then you water one plant, then you say the plant without water died. And then you you conclude that's a scientific method, right? And like with with elections, you have a hundred things changing. You have abortion, you have crime, you have Trump, you have election deniers, and you only observe the outcome. And based on the outcome, which is what we're doing now, we're trying to like tease out, well, maybe it was Hispanics this, maybe it was crime here, abortion here. And it's probably all true. But because of the messy nature of humans, you don't ever get a realistic or definitive answer. 
Yeah, I mean, I, we'll get into that. But I think one of the funny things about this is that it's very possible that Republicans claim the House and it's even still possible that they claim the Senate. And yet everybody's postmortem is about how horrible Republicans did, which I think is is fair. Right. But the question going forward is going to be what are the stories that parties tell themselves, that politicians tell themselves and how they adapt to these results and move forward or not. As the author of one of those postmortems, I think the takeaway that Trump and Trump candidates did horribly is fair enough. And I, I think one test of that is it's just really hard for Republicans to make that argument. You know, the idea that the problem was Trumpism wasn't embraced enough. I don't know. Some people will make that, but it's just such a stretch. And I know that Trumpism often involves stretching reality to degrees which would seem kind of incredible to the rest of us. But I haven't seen too many people make that argument um, in, in the aftermath of this midterm election result. OK, well, we'll carry on debating which results stood out the most in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a finer time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. If you were a subscriber, you would have known what was going to happen in these midterm elections on Monday when we put out that piece by Elliot saying that there was going to be a red ripple, not a red wave. If you're already a subscriber, I hope that you feel you're getting value for money from Elliot's prognostications. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. And you can find that link in the show notes. Now the mother in me tells everyone to go to bed tonight and get some sleep. <laughs> it was the early hours of Wednesday morning by the time Giselle Fetterman told the crowd to go home. Ten minutes earlier, her husband, the now senator-elect John Fetterman, had started his victory speech in front of a rapturous crowd. Like it's, I, what is it, it's like 1.30 in the morning and you're still here hanging in? But many were expecting the Pennsylvania Senate race to be too tight to be called on election night at all. And we had our slogan, it's on every one of those signs right now. Every county, every vote. It looks like Fetterman's oft-talked-about everyman appeal helped him over the line. He won in part by eating into Republican margins in the white working-class counties that Joe Biden had lost in 2020. I never expected that we were going to turn these red counties blue, but we did what we needed to do. But was it Fetterman who won it, or was it the crudités that lost it? I thought I'd do some grocery shopping. I'm at Wagner's and uh, my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? This so, video of Mehmet Oz confusing the names of two Pennsylvania grocery stores was shared widely on the internet. It was one of a number of own goals that made it easy to paint him as an out-of-touch wealthy carpetbagger from New Jersey. I mean, that's outrageous. Well, Oz got hammered, I think, on Saturday night at, uh, at a Trump rally in Latrobe. John Mysick is editor of the Pennsylvania Capital Star and has been our go-to voice in the state as we followed this race. When he told voters to uh, you know, take a break before the Steelers game on Sunday and, and tell your friends to come out and vote for him, whoops, the Steelers had a bye week that week. He says that the Oz campaign's attacks on Fetterman's health didn't work. When it came to the stroke, I think people identified with the humanity there. Fetterman said, you know, everyone's been knocked down and has had to get back up from something. Oz also tried to position Fetterman as soft on crime. Even at his election party on Tuesday night, held tantalisingly close to New Jersey, the Wi-Fi password in the press area was inmates for Fetterman. The polls narrowed as election day neared, but many voters needed more than empty attacks. 
I reflect on conversations I had in West Philadelphia, uh, which is one part of the city that's been particularly impacted by gun violence over the last year or so. But residents are telling me, you know, Republicans come in here and they mouth platitudes, but they don't offer solutions. For the people who are actually living with it day by day, it was just more noise. Of the candidates Trump backed, Dr Oz was one of the more harmless, the easy butt of jokes rather than a genuine threat to democracy. He followed through on his promise to accept the result and conceded to Fetterman on Wednesday morning. But it was the former president's backing that probably saw Oz over the line in a very close primary against a more conventional candidate with closer ties to the state, Dave McCormick. He'd likely have had a better shot at keeping the seat Republican. Well, tonight we showed how to build a coalition to win a race in a big way. Over in the governor's race, Josh Shapiro racked up an easy win. John Mysick again. I've known Josh for probably 17 or 18 years since he was a member of the State House. And this campaign was kind of him to a T. Um, compact, professionalized, nearly mistake free. I, I mean, I, I look back over the last 13 months and I can't think of an area where he gaffed. He outperformed John Fetterman with his slick campaign and because his election denying opponent, Doug Mastriano, caused many voters to cross the aisle. And I want to say a special thanks to the many Republicans across this Commonwealth, many of whom told me they were voting for a Democrat for the first time. In these two marquee races, Democrats have two blueprints for future electoral success. The unconventional outsider, who might win back the white working class, and the smooth moderate, who might unite the centre. With Florida now an even brighter shade of red, Pennsylvania's status as a swing state becomes even more important. In fact, it's hard to see a Democratic path to the presidency without it. Democrats will be buoyed by the good results there this week. Republicans might pay heed to Pennsylvania's rejection of Trumpian extremism and celebrity. So, Charlotte, we've been following this Pennsylvania race in particular all year. And to our surprise, it was actually called pretty quickly. John Fetterman won fairly comfortably in the end. And that pickup for the Senate, for the Democrats, then made the Republican map look a lot harder. They suddenly had to find a couple of extra states and so far haven't managed to do so. That's right. Pennsylvania was a fascinating state for a few reasons. There was Fetterman, of course, and Mehmet Oz, who'd been strongly endorsed by President Trump. And Fetterman was not an ideal candidate, but the Trump-supported Oz couldn't, couldn't defeat him, which I thought was pretty notable. But I was actually more struck in Pennsylvania by Josh Shapiro, who was elected governor of the state. And I had been very anxious about Shapiro's decision to pour money into the Republican primary to help elevate Doug Mastriano, who is an election denier, a real strong Jan 6 guy. And it just felt like a very, very risky bet to me. But it seems to have been a bet that paid off. And you have Josh Shapiro out there giving a speech that feels like he went to the Barack Obama School of Oration. It was very similar in, in cadence to that of the former president. And you had him on stage between Obama and Biden. So it was it was a really interesting night, I think, for the governor's race as well. And it raised questions to me about whether one lesson that Democrats might take away from this night is that 
having Trump at the top of the ticket actually is a good thing for their party, that he'll continue to drive turnout for the left. That, to me, seems, again, very, very high stakes. But I wouldn't be surprised if that debate is happening live right now behind closed doors within Democratic circles. Yeah, I had somebody message me privately saying that some Democrats have gone from worrying about Trump being a threat to American democracy to thinking, actually, it'd be pretty great to run against him in 2024. And I think that is not the right conclusion to draw from these results. And I think that what we said on the podcast is true. This democratic strategy of intervening in Republican primaries to boost election deniers is really playing with fire. Nevertheless, you you could make an argument that tactically it's worked this time around. Idris, are there any other races that you'd particularly like to focus on, any other states? I was particularly interested in the results in Georgia. There we saw that Stacey Abrams lost by pretty sizable margin, roughly eight points last I counted, to Brian Kemp. Uh, It wasn't nearly as close as last time. But what we also saw was that the Senate race between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock is going to go to a runoff because neither man cleared the 50% hurdle and Warnock was slightly ahead in the first count. So depending on how the other to-be-called races go, it might not be relevant for determining control of the Senate, but it will still be pretty closely contested. And I think that the contrast between those two races shows us two things. One, it shows us the drag that putting someone really unqualified for the Senate can have. It's still not very large. It's still only a few points, maybe. But, you know, in a state like Georgia, that's that's probably large enough. And two, I think that it perhaps highlights some of the weaknesses of Stacey Abrams's candidacy after, you know, four years of, of establishing herself as a bit of a, a national celebrity. I think it also, we'll, we'll have to take some time to digest what the effect of new voting laws were. But Georgia had extremely high turnout. And that was true of, of other places across the country as well. So we'll, we'll have to, I think, take an examination of, of what the effect of those laws was. But it doesn't seem to me, at, at least at first glance, that they materially affected the number of people who voted. Charlotte, let's move to another state. You mentioned earlier that the set of results from New York was pretty interesting, your, your home states. Can you tell us a bit more about that? You had Kathy Hochul win the governor's race. She defeated Lee Zeldin. But in Congress, the showing for Democrats was really bad. And in New York, unlike the rest of the country or many places in the country, it felt much more like a standard election i.e. it wasn't a referendum on President Trump, which was this weird phenomenon that played out elsewhere where you had a midterm election that wasn't necessarily a referendum on the sitting president, but on the former one. And in New York, you had it much more, uh, the issues that occupied voters seemed to be crime, the economy. It was a bit more conventional. It was more like a conventional midterm in which power swings away from the sitting president. And in suburban Long Island in particular, there seemed to be a lot of emphasis on the way in which the city had become much more dangerous and people's concern about the city being an unsafe place to visit. In the city itself, Democrats had a very strong showing, as they usually do, but outside of of the five boroughs, people seemed to be worried about it. New York also had a very gerrymandered map that favoured Democratic candidates for the House struck down. How much of a difference did that make at the end? I mean, I've seen some commentary that suggested that given how tight the margin of Republican victory looks to be in the House. You know, that could actually had a really meaningful impact on control of Congress. Yeah, if you look across states, it is the case that there were there was gerrymandering, there was redistricting, that generally Republicans' version of redistricting was upheld by the courts and Democrats was struck down, not just in New York, but elsewhere. 
And so that seems to have been a trend that benefited the Republican Party. In New York, Democrats might have had five seats flipped at the end of the counting. Uh, We don't know for sure yet. But if that's the case, that's enough to uh, probably to to make the difference. Yeah, one of the states that interested me, well, the results that interested me was Michigan, where Democrats did incredibly well, including winning both chambers of the state legislature. And one notable difference with next door Wisconsin is that Michigan has a nonpartisan commission that draws its maps, whereas Wisconsin has an incredibly gerrymandered map, the result of which was that the Democrats got 50% or maybe even just above 50% of the vote in Wisconsin. They've wound up with about 30% of the seats in the state legislature. That commission is new, by the way. So Michigan used to be almost as bad as Wisconsin. And in one election cycle, you see the difference that that makes, in addition to a fairly good result in the state. Okay, well, let's leave our tour of the states there for the moment. We'll be back shortly to look ahead to the next two years and beyond. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even though the votes are still being counted in this election, chatter has already started about the next one. Inevitably, that always happens in American politics. James Bennett writes Lexington, our weekly column on US politics. And I asked him about how the parties are thinking about the 2024 presidential election and whether this week's results mean that Donald Trump's power over the Republican Party might finally be fading. You know, we all have such PTSD (laughs) when it comes to to Donald Trump, the number of times that he was counted out. It's, I think, hard for a lot of people to believe that maybe this time he could actually be not only down but out. I just don't think there's any question he's fading as a force in the party right now. You can never count the guy out. And he is so careful about, you know, maintaining his hardcore support. That's what limits him. I mean, that's why he was never going to be, and certainly now never will be, a broadly popular figure, let alone somebody capable of commanding a popular majority. But but he still has that club, meaning a baseball bat that he can swing at any Republican who tries to stand up to him. And that's a potent force. But I do think he's less powerful today than he was four days ago. I mean, I still think he'll run, of course. Let's turn to the Democrats. You've written a really interesting column this week, arguing that it would be in Joe Biden's interests and America's interests and probably the Democratic Party's interests as well for him not to run in 2024. And that's despite having just presided over pretty strong midterm performance in relative terms for President's party. Yeah, I, I mean, he has presided over a surprising midterm for a sitting president. I also think he got a very surprising amount done in the first two years of his term. You know, he gave a press conference in the wake of the election that demonstrated again that he retains a a real depth of policy knowledge. 
and tremendous reservoirs of empathy and decency. There's no way that I'm, I'm not writing that by any stretch that President Biden is incapacitated and doesn't deserve respect. It's quite the opposite. It's likely that the Republicans will control the House. That means his path to getting anything significant done in the next two years is completely blocked. And my argument is that because of politics and because of biology, he should use these next two years to kind of, to the extent he can, ascend above the political food fight that people are so sick of and sort of preside over the reset of his own party, create an opportunity for other Democratic leaders to emerge and and run against stasis in Washington because the appetite for change is clearly still there in the American public. And I think to the extent he takes himself out, it actually would enhance his ability to reach some deals with Republicans because they'll no longer be looking to damage him as the party's standard bearer, at least not to the same degree. The House Republicans, again, assuming they command the majority in the House, are going to spend so much time investigating him and his family. And if he's not running, that'll make those investigations look utterly malicious, wasteful, I think revolting, really, to the American public. might even prevent them from happening. I just think uh, when you really bear down on all these dimensions, there is a strong argument for him to be what he said he wanted to be in 2020, which is a transitional figure and a bridge to a new generation of leadership. Yeah, and a chance to make some of that talk that was central to the Democratic campaign this time around about repairing democracy more than just a talking point, right, into a real thing. You write in the column this week that there are two arguments for him stepping aside in 2024, one political and the other biological. So we talked about the political one a bit. The biological one, uh, it's hard to talk about this without sounding a bit rude or disrespectful or indelicate. But the way you put it to me when we talked before you wrote the column was that most Americans know somebody in their 80s. And most Americans, even though they may love and respect that person, can't imagine or, or indeed wouldn't want them to be president of the United States. It's just, it is the hardest job in the world. And we've watched young presidents age in that office over the course of four years. Joe Biden, every day, he becomes, sets a new record for being the oldest person ever to hold that office. And, you know, John, I was just so struck watching, I think a lot of audiences were when during the midterms, Barack Obama came back onto the campaign trail and one was reminded of what it's like to see a forceful, nimble, witty, joyful campaign presence. So, yeah, we know people that age. We love people that age. And we turn to people that age for their wisdom, of which Biden has a tremendous reservoir, but it is hard, I think, to imagine somebody of that age coping with crisis after crisis after crisis and delivering the kind of energetic leadership that Americans want. Idris, we're all expecting Donald Trump to announce that he's running for president again next week. I don't think it'll come to any surprise to our listeners to learn that we think that that would be bad, bad for America, bad for the Republican Party, just a terrible idea, period. 
this argument that James makes in his column this week that Joe Biden should step aside and not run in 2024 is more novel. So I wanted to stick with that for a bit. What do you make of that argument that he presents? We discussed it a bit uh, before he wrote it. And, you know, he's making a principled argument, basically, for Biden to step aside. And I guess I've been thinking about it in a more utilitarian way, which is that I think you need to really closely assess the probability that whoever succeeds Biden is able to beat Trump. If you're not that confident that that probability is about to go up, um, then you should be very hesitant in recommending that Biden step aside. But I think in particular, the piece that we haven't discussed is Kamala Harris, who I think would be the obvious heir apparent to Biden, given that she's vice president. Um, And that, I think, fills people with a decent amount of dread, given that she didn't run a spectacular campaign uh, in 2020. Although I think in general, it would be good to have a president who is not above the age of 80. I think one problem that has always been a phenomenon in Washington that's particularly annoying to me is this idea that it's someone's time, this idea that you owe it to somebody to let them be the nominee. I mean, you saw that a bit with Hillary Clinton in 2016. I think the idea that just because Kamala Harris is the vice president, that this is her time, I, I just think it's weird in a enormous democracy for that to be the way that political candidates are chosen. And I understand the way in which me saying that sounds a little idealistic and that there's a practical nature of anointing the next person. But it just seems fundamentally bizarre. There's an interesting structural explanation for that. I mean, Republicans don't play it that way, right? And on the Republican side, now at least, there's no real sense that it's this person's turn or it's that person's turn. It's really a democratic phenomenon. And I think the party does it to try and minimalize conflict between the various bits of its coalition, which is much more diverse and I think harder to unite than the Republican coalition. So I see it as a kind of conflict avoidance strategy. But as a way to pick the best presidential candidate, I don't think it's a great one. Jeb Bush was maybe the closest example that Republicans had that didn't work out so well for him. I will say to Charlotte's point that one of the slogans that Hillary's campaign seriously considered uh, when she was running in 2016 was because it's her turn. So <laughs> that that sentiment is unfortunately very deeply embedded in Democratic psyche. I also think that many advocates of Kamala Harris will say that overlooking her when she's the vice president is an example of racism and sexism. And that will be an incredibly powerful argument, uh, like the charge of possible sexism was in 2016. Well, the Democratic and Republican primaries are a little way away, the 2024 primaries. Before them, there'll be some governing to do or not to do and some budgets that need passing. Idris, you've been thinking a bit about what the lame duck session might look like and what the next couple of years of divided government might look like. Can you pick out a few things that our listeners might want to look out for? Yeah, I think that there is mild optimism about some sort of lame duck tax package coming through. Uh, Nothing substantial, but uh, Democrats might use the last few months of their unified control of Congress to get a few of their priorities through. Uh, There's some talk of a revived child tax credit, for example, but it would probably be smaller than what had been originally pitched. After January, if Republicans, as expected, take over control of the House, I think you will see a reversion to the uh, brinksmanship of the Obama era, a lot of very contentious fights around uh, passage of legislation, possibly around the debt ceiling, possibly around keeping the government open. I think a lot of whatever Biden hasn't managed to pass through Congress will remain unpassed as a result of that. And then we'll get a drumbeat of investigations into the president's actions. Uh, His son probably going to be 
called up a few times uh, before the committee if Republicans take charge as well. So I think it'll be a, a bruising two years for Joe Biden, uh, at the end of which he might take James Bennett's suggestion and uh, retire because it won't be uh, won't be pleasant. Of the things I'm watching over the next two years, one of the enormous forces that will be interesting to track is just what happens as the the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates, the effect that that has on America's housing market. So you have that phenomenon underway in which the federal government's trying to tamp down inflation. And you also have this phenomenon where there's been so much cash that the federal government has now devoted uh, to thinking about the future of manufacturing, for instance, and to trying to accelerate the clean energy transition. So the coming decade is really big to try to meet America's climate targets, the the president and various members of the administration have been focused this week, in addition to the midterms, on the the big climate conference in Egypt. And so, you know, that's a lot of money that's going to go to a lot of states that are both red and blue. You're going to have wind farms and electric charging stations and investment in battery plants and all these things. So you have a, a pretty big transformation that the government is attempting to drive across America, irregardless of, of partisan boundaries. And so the short-term phenomenon of the Fed trying to raise rates and the effect that that has on the economy, and then the longer-term effect of these big uh, federal attempts to guide investment in a way that it hasn't really for a long time, those are going to continue at pace, um, regardless of the the particular infighting that's happening in Washington in a given week. Those are big trends that are going to have effects across the country. Well, I suppose one of the things I'll be keeping an eye on is funding for Ukraine. As we're talking, there are images being posted of Ukrainian flags hoisted above government buildings in Kherson. That's a huge achievement for Ukrainian armed forces and shows, I think, yet again, how effectively they've been able to use the support they've got from America and and other Western countries. Our correspondent who follows this, Anton, thinks that there'll be some Ukraine funding package in the lame duck. But I think it seems unlikely that this war is going to end really quickly, right? I hope I'm wrong, but there's a real chance it goes on for a long time, in which case Ukraine's going to need America's support over the next couple of years. So there's a big question over whether a Republican-controlled House in which the Speaker has a very small margin to play with, a very small majority to play with, is able to get Ukraine the support it needs. I mean, there are clearly the votes there to do it, right, if you go on a bipartisan basis. And there are clearly enough people in the Senate to keep that support for Ukraine going. But that's something we'll be, we'll be watching pretty carefully. Okay, it's been a big week, but it wouldn't be a podcast without a quiz. So guys, get your fingers on the buttons. Question one. Maxwell Frost was elected to represent Florida's 10th district, making him the first Gen Z member of Congress and the youngest person elected to Congress this cycle. The oldest was Chuck Grassley, who was re-elected as a senator for Iowa. What is the age difference between the two of them? Uh, 64 years. Uh, uh, Uncanny. Uh, That is the right answer, Idris. Wow! Because Frost is 25 and Grassley's 89. That's exactly right. That is very good. Very, very good. Hats off. Thank you. You notice the grace with which I concede defeat. <laughs> I'm impressed that your working memory is still so strong, despite having no sleep, Idris. I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to, to spin that any other way. So, <laughs> Question two. Who are the current youngest sitting senators from each party? Uh, and I'll give you a clue. Neither of them were up for election this cycle. The Democrat is... Definitely John Ossoff. 
And who do you think the Republican is, Charlotte? One of your favorites, Charlotte. One of my favorites, a young Republican senator. Is it Josh Hawley? It is Josh Hawley. Favorite. <laughs> I'd like to clarify that it's favorite in terms of fascination, not admiration. You enjoyed the speech that he gave about manliness earlier in the year, which we talked about a bit on the podcast. Indeed I did. Indeed I did. Make America manly again. You know, he, he's writing a book called Manhood. Hmm. Elaborating on his thoughts. I'm, hmm. I'm not making that up. Yeah, it's coming out in hmm. May of next year. I'll send you a copy. I'll put it next to my copy of Amy Comey Barrett, A Justice and Mother. Did she write it? Oh, no, she didn't. But it's on sale. It's part of a Heroes of Liberty series. Oh, okay, okay, okay. No. In which the other books on offer outline the uh, other figures in American in American politics. Uh, yeah. I'll note that they do not include mention of whether they're a parent or not. Okay, well, let's leave it there for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks also to Judy for writing in to correct my pronunciation of Canuck, which rhymes with luck or muck or another word that she pointed out. We really enjoy getting your email, so please do carry on writing to us at podcasts at economist.com. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That makes a big difference to how many people can find it and listen to it. You can find every episode of Checks and Balance at economist.com slash checkspod so you can go and see whether we were right or wrong about this election scrolling back in the feed. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance for you next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.